Welcome to Happy Hour with the Three Tomatoes. And no matter what time of the day you're listening, shouldn't every hour be happy? Cheers and enjoy the episode. Before we start our episode, let's talk girlfriend to girlfriend with a special message and a great offer from our friends at Pulse. We all know that when we go through menopause, we lose estrogen. But what we often don't talk about is how this can lead to intimacy issues. Sex can become uncomfortable and even painful. You may have tried personal lubricants and were turned off by the sticky mess. Well, now there's a new line of awesome personal lubes that were created by a rock star team of women. Doctors, engineers, chemists, and sociologists. You'll love Aloe Ah, a luxuriously smooth silicone-based lube with soothing aloe and vitamin E. And H2O is a natural water-based moisturizing lube made with hydrating organic chia extract. No sticky, icky mess here. You'll also love the Pulse Lube Warming Device. Trust us, ladies. The Pulse products are game changers when it comes to great sex at any age. And here's the best part. Get 15% off all lubricants with code 3TPulse15. Go to lovemypulse.com. What makes fiction important is the the way it conveys its truth. You know, oh. with nonfiction, it's didactic, right? It's can take us the same truth and and immerse it with a story that taps into your feeling centers, right? That's Lorraine Devin Wilkie, an accomplished author and writer in several genres of the media. She and host Debbie Ziff talked about the importance of fiction and the powerful influence it has on our lives. It's a lively and illuminating conversation. Listen in. Hello, everyone. Welcome and cheers. Lorraine is a remarkable writer in several genres. First, novels. She's done three, After the Sucker Punch, Hysterical Love, and a new novel coming out April 9th, The Alchemy of Noise. She is also a journalistic contributor to many top news outlets And she has an art and politics blog that I follow called Rock Plus Paper Plus Music. And I love it. Oh, uh, thank you. It's it's wonderful. And I I recommend everybody subscribing. And, of course, I know you do tons more, but we need to get to the topic today. (laughs) So um, I just wanted you to tell us, Lorraine, what what was what was your motivation? What first got you going and started you on a path to becoming a writer? Well, I think I'd have to I would have to go back to my childhood when and and this is somewhat anomalous in all our lives. I grew up largely without a television. Um, at some point in my very early childhood, our television blew up, and my father refused to replace it. And instead, he would go to the Chicago library and bring back these huge boxes of books and say, dive in. And at first, of course, you know, missing our cartoons was a huge, was a huge loss. But over time, I became literally immersed in these boxes. I, I would look forward to him bringing them home and I would just dive in and read. And I think studies have proven that the more you read, the more facility you have with the written word and, and, both comprehension and creation. And I think it was from there that I just developed a desire and an ability to express myself and communicate through the written word. 
Um, and I loved stories. I loved storytelling in music. I grew up in an era when lyrics were very lyrical and poetic and, and told stories. That was, I would lie on the floor with the album cover, reading the lyrics as I listened to the words, because the, the stories behind things were always really important to me. And since I was a person who always had an urge to speak my mind and, yes. state, my, and state my opinion, nowadays with the advent of the internet and blogs and online article writing, I found that outlet. But I also found an outlet in the creative world, which was screenwriting, songwriting, uh, short stories, and of late novels. So, But I would say those early years of becoming a voracious reader were really a big part of it. I am really, my mouth is open because... Why? I was I was a TV kid. You know, oh, TV yeah. was always, I even was, because I got good grades, allowed to study in front of the TV. Uh, so, you know, it, it just goes to show. So, you know, I was inspired to be an actress because I right. wanted to, you know, be on those shows. But that's remarkable to me. Uh, yeah, well, and, and believe me, I'm not against TV. I just think that no. um, at that formative age, just being literally forced to read instead of watch television it just kind of rewired my brain in a way and um I, actually I, i'm kind of grateful for it oh i love that story oh, and yeah. i think that's a really valuable lesson to parents you know like i always read to my kids before bed it was just i you know and yeah i think it's that is always so very important but there's a lot uh, and I've only taken up, I'm a voracious reader now, but that's like after I raised my kids, basically. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just, I love it. I love it so much. So, so, and one of the reasons, of course, because I love reading so much, uh, and I read this amazing article you wrote on, that was published on BookTrib. When Truth Finds Its Story, The Illuminating Power of Fiction. Well, that, that kind of blew me away. I mean, I was, and, it, and really, as I said, it inspired this podcast, but it also kind of made me feel a little less guilty that fiction is my first <laughs> preference. I have a lot of nonfiction on my Kindle, but yeah. I haven't read it. <laughs> I understand. I just I understand. go for, so... Tell us the significance, uh, you know, how and why the truth that you talk about in this article gets lost or gets lost more so today uh, than any other time in history. Well, I think we, 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 we have to see that it's related to the technological changes in our culture, the advent of the Internet and, and the sheer glut of information that we're bombarded with via the internet and social media and cable news shows and all of it, um, there's, there's always a push from each one of these mediums to get our eyes and our ears. And because business models for profitability have changed as the, as the culture changed, um, these sites and these cable shows and these, well, particularly internet news mm -hmm. demands that a different kind of paradigm for how to get people to read them. And so this was the, the, the invention of clickbait, which is a term used quite a bit by writers yes. on the online, which is articles and headlines that are designed specifically to draw your eye so that you click on the article, because if you click on the article, that site, that medium will get advertising dollars. And so because I've worked for many of these sites, I know that a lot of times the intention was 
pick the most sensationalistic story, pick the most mm -hmm. salacious story and give it a headline that's going to drag people's eyes to it. And the pursuit of truth, proper research, uh, verifiable facts sometimes gets deprioritized in the effort to jump on the story and grab those eyes and ears as before everybody else. And, you know, I think that that it's it's. And I'm not denigrating online journalism because I'm a part of it, but I do think um, the bar has been lowered somewhat. And yeah. I think that we see it when we when we go on, say, social media or particularly like Twitter, where you see a hundred different people covering the same exact story. Well, how does your website get that click? How does that newspaper get that click? They have to dig deeper, create more sensation. And sometimes... Oh. Opinion gets translated as truth. Sometimes spin gets translated as fact. Sometimes partisan uh, propaganda gets uh, internalized as actual, well, truth, and it's not. And I think that's wow. created some problems in our culture, to be honest with you. I mean, so is that why you think, um, is that just one of the reasons why you think fiction is so powerful and, and important for us today to read? Well, to be really honest, I think most people that write nonfiction, and I'll, I'll flip that question a little bit, because I think okay. nonfiction is obviously a really important and, and popular genre, and it, it asks us, it taps into our, our thinking and our analyzing yes. brain. It, 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 it makes us learn things and absorb material and hopefully go out into the real world and implement it and, and change our lives for the better. So it plays a very significant, important role. Um, and I would imagine that most people that write nonfiction books do so with absolute uh, fealty to fact and verifiable truths because the truth so much that makes fiction so important. I think what makes fiction important is the the way it conveys its truth. You know, oh. with nonfiction, it's didactic, right? It's it's like we're going to give you some facts and some study tools and we're going to, you know, support it with all this information where it's yeah. fiction can take us the same truth and and immerse it with a story that taps into your feeling centers right that you feel something you feel for these characters you you become involved with them you develop empathy for them you follow their story and you want good outcomes for them if they're good people you want bad outcomes if they're bad <laughs> people and through that process the learning and the illumination is less didactic, less direct, but it can often have a greater impact because it's tapped into your feeling uh, parts of your brain and your soul and your heart, you know? And I think that um, that's actually been proven, right? I mean, there was a study done. I referenced this in another article I wrote. There was a study done, I actually wrote down the names because I wanted to say them correctly, by oh. two, two, two people, David Comer Kidd and Emmanuel Castano, they did a study, and these are New York psychologists, that proved that reading literary fiction actually enhanced the reader's ability to develop empathy, to detect and understand other people's <gasps> emotions. And they conducted this series of five experiments where they got a thousand different participants together and they were assigned books to read. And, and this isn't just fiction, they're saying actually literary fiction. And they gave them popular fiction, fan fiction, and then more literary fiction. And through their techniques, they determined that those who read the literary fiction, which has a deeper exploration of the human mind, humanity, words, ideas, concepts, 
those people walked away with a deeper uh, understanding of the complexities in terms of recognizing humanness and inspiring them to the to understand the minds of others. And I thought that 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 was a pretty powerful statement to make about work of creative imagination. And I totally agree with it because it certainly impacts oh, me. Way. Yeah, I mean that is a that's a wow. I mean that is because I I you know. I, I think we can all cite examples. Um, I recently read a book called Pachinko. Uh-huh. And because I, I, I tend to like historical fiction, but it, it what I did was I learned a lot from it. Right. I learn a lot and I learn a lot about the truth. I know it, you know, things may be, you know, elevated a little in terms of the storyline, but I learned so much and, and, and you get attached to this family that goes through generations. And that's one of the things where I can see you, you get attached to the characters if you love them. And it just, it, yeah, it just makes so much sense to me. I'm not as articulate as you. Can you maybe give me just a couple more examples of ones that, that really stand out in your mind as to what you're saying? Well, I, I think, and I think I mentioned some of these in the article you're referencing. Yeah. I mean, as a child, one of the first books that impacted me was To Kill a Mockingbird yes. because it so artfully and soulfully depicted the racial climate of that day. And it really um, stirred my uh, anger and outrage in a way that that is carried through to my adult life and led me to explore areas of racial disparity and conflict since then. Um, and that was fiction. Um, another book in a similar line, but a different, a different demographic was The Little Drummer Girl, which was a sort of a thriller international espionage novel by John le Carré, which explored the Middle Eastern situation in a way that I had never read. I had never really gotten a sense of the Palestinian side of that, of that situation. And I thought that book so beautifully and, and sensitively illustrated both viewpoints of that struggle and what's going on. And I found that very moving and it really changed my perspective. Um, there's even, even there's a, like there's a, a contemporary novel that I love is written by a young writer named Nama Coaster and it's called Halsey Street. And it's about the gentrification that's going on in Brooklyn that has um, dramatically changed the, the neighborhoods there, the diverse neighborhoods. And, and she explores it yes. through a story of a family and what they go through and how it changes their lives and their relationships in their community. And I think those are just three examples. There's millions. But I yes. find that I like being moved by fiction more than sitting down and, say, reading a book about the gentrification of Brooklyn that's nonfiction and gives me a lot of facts and a lot of data. I can take something away from that. But to be honest, I was more moved by Nama Coaster's story that infused it with people and the human lives that are impacted by it. And I think that's a very powerful way to get ideas and themes and, well, you know, I across. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. What was the name of that book again? The Holly Street? Halsey Street, H-A-L-S. Okay, yeah. it's going yeah. on my list. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's a very good book. I highly recommend list. it. Really enjoyed it. And so from what I'm hearing, um, you know, you have your new novel, The Alchemy of Noise, coming out uh, April 9th. And um, 
and that digs deep into the politics of contemporary culture and and the you know the complexity of race uh, through a love story right. and and a suspenseful drama and and it is a work of fiction but it is also a very personal story for you and 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 so I mean what I, I know I can, from what you've just, all you've said, I can understand why you chose fiction to deliver this story. Sure. Um, but uh, what, um, but I know it took you a few years to write this. I was wondering if you could elaborate on why that was and what prompted you to write it now? Well, <clears throat> I, back in the 80s, um, I mean, from the time I was a child, like I was telling you about uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and there was also another quick moment when I was a child where I came upon this photograph in Life magazine where I saw, it was during the Civil Rights Movement, where I saw a group of white men standing around a fire pit where a black man was being burned and killed. And I was very young at the time, and I was absolutely gut-punched by that. And from those, those two things, that and the To Kill a Mockingbird, I've always had this... Uh, focus on why we live lives where the color of someone's skin is such a dramatic uh, disparity between people. I've never understood it. It's outraged me. It's angered me. But as a white girl growing up as a child in a very white small town community once we left Chicago and, and a white woman advancing through life wrapped in the bubble of white privilege, you might say, mm -hmm. well, why? Well, in the 80s, I you know, I was living in L.A., I was very immersed in the music scene, and I was involved with a man of color with whom I lived for six years. Wow. And whatever I thought, whatever I thought I knew about racism in America, whatever I thought I understood about what black people uh, experienced, I was quickly disabused of it by my proximity through this relationship. It was something I would have never imagined, but I got to sit and experience uh, when I say sit, I mean, I'm picturing myself in a car because we were stopped by the police so many times <gasps> that I got to the point, and I still have this decades later, a certain PTSD that when I see a police car behind me, I get immediately very nervous because we would be stopped for absolutely zero reason. There would be nothing going on. And these, these harassing, aggressive events would happen that were so offensive and so ridiculous that I was just stunned. I would say to my partner, how do you deal with this? <sighs> and over that six years, those experiences ratcheted up in such a way that it ultimately destroyed our relationship because we oh. couldn't survive it. Um, but I knew someday I would write about it. Um, then decades later, I'm writing for HuffPost. There's all sorts of stuff going on in the culture, whether it's you know Ferguson or Philandro Castro or, or, or Sandra Bland. And I'm writing about these incidences. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly dawned on me that that story that I had is still so relevant, still so sadly, so outrageously relevant that I knew I wanted to write about it. So that's what that's what. And when you say it's personal. Basically, I didn't want to write a memoir. I don't write memoirs. I don't want to be burdened by fact. I want to have the freedom of fiction. Yes. So I created all these characters. I set them in contemporary Chicago, the city of my birth, a city roiled by racial conflict and I let them fall in love and find their equilibrium and then I dumped on them the series of events that I had witnessed and experienced all those many decades ago 
oh. and, and forced them to deal with them and see if they could transcend them. And that is essentially the, the thrust of that story. And I'm not going to tell you whether they do, because I want you yeah, to read no. it. But, um, <laughs> that, so it's personal, but it's fiction. And um, I think part of it is that I also feel that as a white person living in the world today, it's my job to participate in changing the narrative of our culture. Yes. And I felt like this was one way that I could do that. And so that was, that's what drove me. Well, I applaud you. I, you know, as I, I think I've told, or I will tell everybody I've pre-ordered the book. Okay. Um, and I'm so looking forward to delving into it because I think what you've done, what you, people will find is how powerful putting that story into that framework will have on the reader and uh, because you're still getting at your truth and the revelations you ha came to during that period and I, I think it's just I think it's brave and I think it's uh, remarkable um, I, I just well, can yeah. I interrupt you for just a quick yes, second? Please. I want to correct a pronunciation. It's Philando Castile. I said his name wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think it's essential that we say these names right of these people that were murdered and injured and afflicted by racial profiling and aggression. So I just wanted to correct that because I, I said it without looking at it. I'd written his name down because I wanted to say it correctly. So I had to correct it there. I was uh, just wondering also on topic, uh, you know, there's this new hot button issue now called white splaining. Sure. I'm still coming to terms. I, I'm still not sure what that means, um, but it, it seems like a relevant point considering what we're talking about today. I was just wondering if you could elaborate on what that really means. Uh, well, confused yeah, I, by it. I would be happy to because it really does apply to this book I've written. I mean, yeah. white splaining is like the equivalent of mansplaining, right? It, it's the idea that uh, a white person comes into a situation and extrapolates upon it and explains it to people of the black community as if they, oh, need, okay. as if they need white people to do that, as if women need men to mansplain situations to them. That's the the uh, essence of the word. But I think beyond white splaining, there's also this trend that's happening in social culture where um, there there has been so much marginalization and and exclusion of diverse voices, of diverse voices mm -hmm. of women, of people of color, of all sorts of things, that the pendulum swing now is that there's a resistance to stories of race being told by white people. It's as simple as that. And the problem with that, though, for me, as a white person who has yeah. written a book that includes black characters and, and with their families and their lives, is that it's basically saying we're the only people who can tell these stories when I think we all need to be telling these stories. And I think the way we solve the fears of cultural appropriation and the lack of representation of of diverse voices is we increase their opportunities. We give voices of color and diversity more opportunities to express themselves. We don't tell other people they can't be part of the conversation. Because as a white writer writing that story, and I had every single agent that I talked to, and this was in the hundreds, 
turned my book down, some of oh. whom said they loved it and thought it was important and well-written, they turned it down because they said the issue, the fear of cultural appropriation is extreme right now, and I don't want to take it on because I don't think I can sell it. And luckily, I was able to find a very courageous publisher, Brooke Warner of She Writes Press, who basically said, yeah, you're going to probably get some pushback, but I believe in the story. I think it's an important story, and we're willing to take that on, for which I was eternally grateful. But my oh. mandate as a white writer who did not want to be one of those white splainers, who did want to honor and respect the black experience through my eyes was to make sure I got it right. And to do that, I got sensitivity readers, meaning people from the black community to mm -hmm. read the book. I spent hours and hours of time doing research. I did you know, extensive interviews. I had a particular woman who was, I did a three-part interview with that ran on HuffPost, who's a very active New York activist, a member of the Black Lives Matter group, who helped me define and, and create characters and situations that were authentic and respectful and sensitive. And I relied on her opinion and I gave her the book to read and I said, tell me, if I didn't get any of this right. And she wrote me back the most beautiful endorsement and said, you got it right. And to oh. me, that's the way I could participate in this conversation, but still very much honor that, that burden, that demand to honor the people I'm talking about in a circumstance that is fraught with sensitivity. And yeah. all I can say is, is that I think our culture needs to continue to expand opportunities for diverse voices, but not you know, not shut down other voices that are also contributing to the conversation. I think we can do both. And that's well, what I'm hoping for. I, I applaud you for doing that, writing this book. I applaud the publisher for being courageous. I have no doubt that it will be a success. And it's an important story. And your voice is important on on this subject matter. I I hope everybody will, you know, you can order The Alchemy of Noise now on a pre-order on Amazon, and I hope everyone will will do that. Uh, I, you know, I'm so grateful for you enlightening us today, Lorraine. Oh, uh, this was, I think, a very important conversation. I also want to tell the listeners that after the sucker punch and historical, hyster I keep saying historical, <laughs> hysterical love are also on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And actually for people living in LA who are listening today, the alchemy of noise is uh, having a book event with Lorraine coming up on April 18th at book soup in yep. Los Angeles. And then you're going to be touring. You're going to be at yeah. cities across the U.S. and on other well, dates. Right. And I, you know, people can go to my website and get those dates. Um, we're not, unfortunately, getting any further east than Chicago right now. But there are, you know, Seattle, San Diego, Chicago, San Francisco. So there's lots of places where I hope people will come out and, you know, participate in the conversation and get the book and support independent bookstores and get a book cookie because yes, I always I, have book I, cookies. A book cookie. Oh, boy. <laughs> so uh, just so everybody knows, your uh, website is www.lorraine, L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E, Devin Wilkie, W-I-L-K-E.com. And you can find out 
about all about Lorraine, and she is someone to find out about. So <laughs> thank you so much, thank you, Lorraine, for being here. I'm toasting to you and all of our listeners, and I hope you all have a lovely rest of the evening.